It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I like that music. What about you, Rich? Oh, it's great. I'm sitting here just kind of like rocking back and forth. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome uh, to this episode of the Athletic Obscura podcast, the podcast that's the home of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. My name is Seth Mormon. Across the table from me is my good friend Richard Manning. How's it going, eh? Hey, what's up, man? Uh, so, Richard, last uh, episode we had a fun little exercise in the butterfly effect. Uh, we spent some time uh, with uh, with the life of the St. Louis Browns, if they would have moved to Los Angeles uh, for the 1942 season, and how the baseball world uh, would have been vastly different. It was a lot of fun. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. It would have been weird. It would have been crazy. It, it would have. Um, but uh, um, one thing we, we know is that the Browns didn't move to L.A. They moved to Baltimore in, in what year? Richard? 1954. Right. Um, I have it tattooed on my arm now. <laughs> I don't think either of us is, is going to uh, forget that. Although I think in my notes, I wrote it down wrong. So just so you, you know. You did, yeah. You wrote it in 1955. So I think you were trying to sabotage me. Uh, probably. I was yeah, probably going to. dare you. But we are going to head back to St. Louis, which uh, is a little bit crazy, but uh, that's just a little bit of tease. But before we do, let's talk Olympics. Yeah. Uh, Richard, you watch much of the of the Olympics? I got to be honest with you. I really didn't watch a whole lot uh, just because odd year, the pandemic, it just kind of threw off the rhythm, threw out the balance. Yeah, and, you know, being halfway across the world, kind of watching things live was 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 hard. Um, I I don't think I watched a single minute of, like, the network coverage, but I watched, like, a ton of stuff on YouTube and, and other things like that. But I didn't, I didn't watch a, a, a ton. But there are, some, there are some great things that happened in the Olympics. Yeah, what I did wind up watching a lot was the uh, coverage on, like, USA Network. Oh, okay. Uh, they, were doing a lot of, they were doing a lot of the team volleyball uh, at night, which was fascinating to watch. Um, a lot of the uh, uh, field events from track and field. So I was able to watch, like, the hammer throw and, uh, you know, the discus and... Those kind of events, which are kind of cool. Yeah, my daughter uh, throws a disc in high school, and when she was watching the the girls throw, or um, for in the Olympics, she was like, "Oh my gosh, that's so far!" I go, "Yeah, you got something to look forward to." She's like, "All right, yeah." And then, yeah, I mean, so my youngest daughter watch, uh, plays uh, water polo, so we watched some water polo and. Uh, Brutal sport, man, especially with those camera angles underneath the water. Extremely brutal. I'm glad they have those camera angles because I don't think a lot of people realize exactly. how brutal that is. Yeah. What was cool is it gave my uh, my daughter a chance to relay the story how she met one of the Olympians that actually came and watched one of her games uh, a couple years ago. Oh, that's fun. What was cool is she's like she got out of the water 
And the Olympian went up to her and said, you are fierce in the water, and I thought you were way taller than what you were. That's a good, great compliment. Yeah, because That's awesome. my daughter is like four foot eleven, and <laughs> yeah, in heels. Yeah, and she was playing uh, a few inches taller because yeah. you know she knows how to egg beat. Absolutely, so yeah. it's pretty awesome. Cool, cool, yeah. cool. I I got to watch uh, a good chunk of the opening ceremonies. I was in a restaurant in Houston, Texas, um, watching a lot of it, and it, it was enjoyable. Although it was weird not having you know a crowd. Right. I get it. I understand why they're doing all that, but it's just kind of weird. I didn't get to watch any of the closing ceremony. Did you get to watch any I didn't of it? watch any opening or closing, and I, we were camping in Mammoth, California, for the first few days of the Olympics, so I think that's what, I mean, uh, I I love watching team handball. I think you and I both love team Absolutely. handball. Absolutely, so and much fun. I only watched just fractions uh, here and there. I did watch uh, a good chunk of the gold medal basketball game. Oh, okay. Which was fascinating because, you know, France uh, played them tough. I mean, France beat them in the preliminaries. Yep. Uh, Rudy Gobert uh, was like the anchor of that team. And But Kevin Durant, where does Durant rank in the pantheon of greatest Olympian, uh, uh, American Olympians? Yeah, he's got to be up there, right? I mean, three gold medal games, yeah. 30 points, 30 points, 29 points. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good stuff. Yeah, and if he actually didn't have size like 17 feet, they probably would have uh, made it to the uh, conference finals. Because that, that, that two-pointer to hit against the Bucks in Game 7 is a yep. three-pointer in that case. Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure if the, the Tokyo Olympics um, will be extremely memorable f- um, other than the fact that they were a year late. Yeah. You know, um, and that instead of being the you know the 2020 summer olympics were held in 2021 that'll probably be something on our podcast in in 40 years you know when yeah. we're still doing this thing and people don't remember <laughs> back in my day what well, i remember when the olympics were in the wrong year well we could do that now with our first uh, olympic memories cuz they're all 40 years old ah, isn't stuff. that crazy right? what do you remember the, the first olympic memories what where do you go back to uh, 1980 Winter Olympics in okay. Lake Placid, yeah. New York. Uh, I mean, obviously, the U.S. boycotted uh, Moscow in 1980, so I really didn't have many summer Olympic memories until 1984. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the two big ones, Eric Hyden winning the five uh, speed yep. skating gold medals, and, of course, the Miracle on Ice. Absolutely. And just, you know, just that's just one of the events that, you know, you just, dissect as a sports fan because it's so iconic on more than just a sports level absolutely i i remember uh sitting uh in the car it was a friday and we were Mm -hmm. on our way um to play video games my father would always take the kids out and we play video games or do putt putt golf or something like Mm -hmm. that and i remember it came on the radio and they said uh i want to give you the score of the of the uh of the hockey game if you don't want to know go ahead and turn your radio down remember those days where they said turn your radio down uh but we wanted to know and i remember hearing and then we when we got home we watched it and it was it was it was amazing i i remember that one of the things i remember when you talk about eric hyden and and the speed skating uh, speed skating was done outdoors. Yeah, at that point, it they, was absolutely. Yeah, I don't was, remember when exactly they moved it inside. It was a couple of Olympiads after that, but I don't remember yeah, I exactly. Think it was eighty-eight. Yeah, that's think Sarajevo was outside as well. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Um, I, I have I have a memory of sitting on the couch with my mom, watching downhill skiing, and it. And it had to be for the for the seventy six Olympics mm-hmm. in Innsbruck. Yeah, um, and I don't really remember anything other than black and white TV, 
footage. I mean, color TV existed. It's not. I'm not that old, people. Right. But but we didn't have one. It was just black and white TV. And I, I do remember uh, that a little bit. Um, I also remember. Um, a lot of the of the Montreal '76 Summer Olympics okay. as well. We we watched that, uh, especially the track and field. I remember pretty pretty much. I I, I love the Olympics, Rich. We've talked about it ad nauseum. Yeah. you know that that we love it for many many years. We did like a watch party for the opening or the closing ceremonies at our house. We would have people over. We would we called it. Uh, my wife would always call. We had a, Olympic chili. I would yeah. make a big pot of chili, and we'd have a, a lot of people over. Yeah. And um, we've done that before. I remember uh, the Sochi Olympics and uh, like three hour. I, I still have to pat myself on the back because I called who was going to light the torch. I'm like, well, it's got to be Trechiak. Yeah, right. Oh, that was that was perfect. That, yeah. was, that was good. Cool. I I think my other Olympic memory that I that I have it was for the '84 uh, Olympics, and this is not me watching the Olympics, but uh, an encounter that I had with the Olympics because uh, 1984 Summer Games were in the Los Angeles area here, where I right. grew up. We both grew up in, right. in, in, here. Um, I was, uh, it was a summer uh, basketball for high school, mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, I had uh, come out of practice and was riding my bike, and I'd heard that the torch was going to be going by on Garden Grove Boulevard. Okay. You know, and I lived like like uh, right off of Garden Grove Boulevard, so the, the Olympic torch went about a thousand yards from my house and so i was on my bike and i was there to watch it and then i kind of saw a bunch of people like in bikes like following it and so i just joined them and i followed the olympic torch like for a long way like i think i made it to like i don't know buena park Wow! Something, and all of a sudden, I went, "Holy cow! I've I've got to get home at some point." <laughs> and then I turned. It was a much more lonely ride headed back home. Yes, uh, but I did follow the Olympic torch for quite a while. That that's that's probably one of my one of my bigger Olympic memories. I really I really thought that was great. Um, what about what about Olympic sports? We already talked team handball. We're both we both love team handball. But what are right. other things, winter or summer, that you kind of dig? Well, obviously, uh, you know. Some of the teams for us, like uh, basketball, is great just because it's a lot more uh, competitive than I think it gets credit for because sure. there's so many great players from other country. I mean, hockey, I think, is the best team's tournament mm-hmm. out there just be- when the uh, NHL is allowed to send their players over these days because, right. you know, 2022 is going to be absolutely uh, tremendous if that happens just because. The lineup the the U.S. can bring over there is going to be ridiculous, uh, but uh, team handball is another one that's just you know we got to talk about this uh, sometime about why team handball isn't more built up and there's a couple of good theories that we'll get into a later podcast as to why that is. But I, I it doesn't make sense it, that it wouldn't be popular in the United States. It's a phenomenal sport because yeah. it combines elements of so many sports that we yeah. love. Yeah. Into one, right? And it's right. awesome. Um, uh, I I think when I'm thinking summer Olympics, I, uh, I I'm always intrigued by some of the things that I only see every once every four years, like some of like the the, the rowing and yeah. those things are 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 amazing. There's like stand up ones that are on one knee, and then there's other ones where they're you know rowing backwards and there's all those those are fascinating to me and i know people who do those things are cringing right now because i'm using terrible uh, terms but that doesn't really matter i'll tell you one that caught our attention as a family and it happened like the night before the closing ceremonies 
group rhythmic group rhythmic gymnastics. Oh, I didn't see any of that because it's not like individual where it's just one person. Yeah, it's like five team, five members of a team, and they're doing this coordinated acrobatic stuff with the hoops and the ball oh, and cool. the uh, the pins and. There are some ridiculous things where we are like jumping out of our seats. Like, how are they doing this? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like Cirque du Soleil, but with medals involved. It is just absolutely. <laughs> Could you imagine at the end of a Cirque show that they're they handing out medals to the people who were involved in it? Seriously, there was like one moment where this one, um, these two women had joined these two hoops together with a pin. And then one woman just like almost did like a baseball slide, yoinked the uh, pin out from the middle, and that separated the pins. And another one came around and just like reached out from behind and just grabbed the hoop. It was just crazy. The physics involved, the math involved. How many times they've they've practiced that and worked through that, and and the athleticism that's involved in that? It's incredible. When when I watched the Winter Olympics, and I, I didn't think about that this until right now. We're actually kind of close to a Winter Olympics. Yeah, I mean, it's, February. It's like months away. Yeah, this is this is awesome. But I like um, I like the biathlon. Yes, you know, it, it's it's crazy aerobic um, cross country skiing, and then you need to get a gun off of your back and and shoot targets. So you're like your heart rate is going crazy, and then you got to control it, control your breathing, and then you got to shoot. And if you don't shoot them, then you got to run a penalty lap. A penalty lap. I guess you're not running. You're skiing. You're a skiing penalty. a penalty lap. And really, the biathlon last year, the last Olympiad, had the best moment because it was down to neck and neck where one guy had, like, stick his ski, his, uh, ski out oh. to, like, cross the finish line by a fraction. It, and and to th- those are not short distance races. No, yeah, they're 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 it's doing incredible. They're doing so, a ton. You just made me think of one other brush. I mean, it's not as cool as yours, sure, but it does involve me being on TV and being all wizard like. Oh, cool, sure. So we, it's the uh, metal. It's not the metal game, but it's the game in twenty fourteen, Team USA and Team Canada. And hockey, and Canada beat him one nothing, and me and a mutual friend of ours was at a place that we used to go to to watch hockey. Sure, sure, sure. Donald yep. Beach Cafe, yep. And KNBC, the local NBC affiliate in Los Angeles, was down there, and they were doing live Men on the Street, and so they got our buddy and myself because he was Can- he, he's from Toronto, and so he's Canada Canadian, and I'm the American. And they got me talking, and I wound up inadvertently predicting Austin Matthews. Ah, fantastic. Because they're like, yeah. You are I, a savant. I, I went on going and said, there's guys coming from California. There's there's a kid coming from Arizona. And yeah. that was like when Matthews was like, you're number one or two in major junior or something awesome. like that. I'm like, Yes. <laughs> Just don't mind me. Well, we could go all day with this, but we do have, we want to get into kind of uh, our main topic. And we did tease that we're heading back to St. Louis. And and the reason is that the Olympic Games were held in St. Louis in 1904. And it was the third modern Olympics. Uh, The the first one, um, 1896 in Athens. Which makes sense. Uh, Makes sense. Um, And then 1900, Paris. Um, and, And maybe we need to start there with the Paris Olympics just a little bit before we get into to the uh, St. Louis Olympics because the Paris Olympics, this is the second um, Olympiad. 
Uh, the Paris Exposition is going on, uh, commonly referred to as the Paris World's Fair, was happening right. there. And um, the Olympics sort of became a little sideshow. It, it wasn't like the, the big thing that it is today. There, there wasn't like the big pomp and circumstance. There, there's not the, um, you know, uh, the, the opening closing ceremonies. There's right. not all of those things. And so it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't turn out great. It was almost like it was like the athletic component of the World's Fair because you know how you're supposed to like present, you know, the future and technology and all this is like look at the state of the athletic uh, around the world. You know, that's kind of the way it was. And there, there were some in some of the research that I was doing, some people who were uh, at that Olympics that were doing um, athletics that didn't actually realize they were competing in an Olympics, right? Like they were there for the exposition, not for the Olympics, but they ended up being in the Olympics, and it was. It, and some of the fans that were there were confused too. Yeah, it was. It was a very confusing thing. So in 1904, the Olympics are supposed to be going to Chicago, um, uh, in, in the United States, right? And um, that poses a a few issues just because at this time, if you're going to be traveling uh, from around the world to the United States, you're going to be traveling on ship. And then if you get to the United States, then you need to take the train. And so Chicago was like, I'm not sure if this is going to be uh, the, the great thing. Uh, but we talked St. Louis. Well, how does St. Louis get into involved in this? Well, in 1903, they were supposed to be doing the, the Louisiana um, Purchase Grand Exposition, basically another World's Fair. They couldn't get, uh, as we like to say in our house, they couldn't get their poop in a group uh, to get uh, it all together <laughs> in 1903, so they push it off to 1904. Right. So now you have two competing international events happening in 1904. And one thing, getting back to Chicago, it's Chicago had already proven on the world stage that they could actually have an event of that magnitude because they had the World's Fair in 1893, yep. and uh, that's kind of where you get the story about Nikola Tesla putting out his uh, alternating current and lighting up the city and wowing everybody and eventually getting the upper hand in his battle with Thomas Edison. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And, and right. World's Fair at this point, that's where like the pomp and circumstance was. Absolutely. That, that's where the, the, the eyes of the world were kind of there. They, they weren't on, on an Olympics necessarily. Right. And so um, what, what happens now is that the organizers there in St. Louis – uh, realize this is kind of bad for business if we're going to have a bunch of people going to Chicago. So they do a few little underhanded things. One of the big things is that they uh, they invited the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union, uh, to hold their championships at the St. Louis uh, Fair, at the exposition. And that basically then strips all of the uh, American athletes from going to the Olympics. Yeah, because they were terrified that if they held in Chicago, there wouldn't have any no no athletes would show up. Yeah, so they make this they make this deal. I mean, there's a person named James Sullivan. We're going to get into him a little bit, but he's kind of involved in this a little bit. Um, so the AAU ends up having their track and field championships mixed in now with the Olympics. So now it's kind of muddy here but eventually they just kind of give up chicago kind of gives up and say okay so the olympics are going to be there pierre de coubertin basically resigns himself to saying okay it can it can be down there um he is not super thrilled with with that um uh, in fact i think where's this quote i, I wrote yeah, right here uh, Patriot, yeah uh coubertin actually uh why is later uh 
quoted, and he actually wrote this, so it actually is an official quote. I had sort of a present uh, presentment that the Olympics would match the mediocrity of the town. Yeah, and he didn't even show up. So, yeah, he didn't show up and threw shade at St. Louis in the process saying, yeah, the city stinks. Absolutely. So the Olympics will stink too. <laughs> but isn't it interesting, though, that you have two players, Chicago and St. Louis. Yeah. Here we are over 120, you know, almost 120 years later. And there's still that fierce, bitter rivalry between Chicago and St. Louis. Yeah. This begs the question, how much do those origins of that rivalry come back to here? It, yeah, it might. I mean, we talked a little bit about some of that um, in, in what was that, two episodes ago between the, the Blues and the Blackhawks. Yeah. You know, but but is that because it's more because it's not just sports though. It's there's a regional rivalry. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it's food, it's culture, it's all of those things. It really is. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, the the the, uh, the exposition, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, opens in April. Um, there's some interesting things that happen with that. Um, that's the first place where there's ever uh, cotton candy. Uh-huh. Uh, in my house, we call it fairy floss, um, like they do yeah. in like some of the other countries in the world. But cotton candy, it's also the first place with waffle cones for ice cream. That blows me away because I didn't think uh, that – I, I always thought of that as kind of a newer uh, newer technology. Yeah, it was like, like there, was a, there was a waffle person and an ice cream person. The ice cream person ran out of bowls, and so they got together and they put the ice cream on the waffle, and there you go. That waffle, works. waffle cone cones were born. Uh, the plot of the classic Judy Garland musical "Meet Me in St. Louis" was uh, built around the the uh, World's Fair. I, I have I have a, a a memory when I was a child flying to St. Louis, uh-huh. um, and there were some uh, some ladies in the back of the plane who had been overserved, and they kept uh, singing in very old, warbly, terribly out of tune. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. <laughs> meet me at the fair. <laughs> I just I just thought awesome that, was, that was hilarious. That that gets played in our house like once a year around Christmas, of course. And there's two things that stand out uh, of that. Is there's a scene where the guy that's courting Judy Garland and starts talking about oh going off and playing basketball, oh. and then you take a step back and think, wait a minute, basketball was invented six years earlier. Yeah, yeah, in 1898, oh. and so it was like. He's playing some weird sorcery voodoo game. Well, and, and in it's, that standard, and it was a demonstration sport in in the Olympics in St. Louis. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And also, you also have the depressing pandemic-approved version of "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." Well, that's true too. Yeah, yep. Which was originally even sadder. They actually <laughs> made him change the move, the uh, lyrics in the original movie. Yep. So anyway. now, now, if you go back, if you go back to kind of the world's fairs at this time, they were a product of their of their time, um, and and looking back at them, you kind of go, it kind of makes you cringe, you know, with some of the things that that happened there. Mm-hmm. The, the, it really ends up being an exposition of imperialism and racism, um, colonialism, uh, not within the scope of this podcast necessarily, but not things that we need to shy. Uh, away from yeah. either. There was a lot of uh, anthropological I- exhibits. Indigenous people from around the world were basically in human zoos mm-hmm. uh, during this. Uh, they talked about the assimilation of Native Americans, um, talking about all these great things that they were doing with them. There was reenactments of the Boer Wars. Now, if you don't know anything about the First and the Second Boer Wars, they were fought in South Africa. Uh, basically, it, it's... it's uh, 
I'm going to gloss over this. If you're a history person, you know, please just give me some grace here. Uh, basically, between some of the British colonials and some of the um, uh, the people who were uh, natively living there in the area, and there's a racist undertone, there's colonial undertones, mm-hmm. there's imperialistic undertones with that. But they did war reenactments at the St. Louis World's Fair of the Boer Wars, and they brought in over 600 people to reenact this who fought on either side of it as a reenactment. That's absolutely insane. That's that's, that's That just doesn't seem ethical. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, you know, and... And again, you got to realize that just colonialism at that point in the world was uh, rampant all over the place. Yep. And even here, because that place were, what, 20 years removed from, you know, Chinese building the uh, railroads yep. and all the other stuff. And, you know, I mean, I know in Peru, they pretty much took uh, uh, Chinese, uh, you know, slave labor to, to uh, replace, uh, use them as indentured service to replace the slaves that they had uh, before the laws changed. It's absolutely, I strongly recommend digging into that period of how that was uh, treated around the turn of the 20th century. It's rather appalling looking at it through a modern lens. Um, Well, let's turn our attention more back to the, to the Olympics. And, and uh, this is where things are going to give it a little bit weird. We've already, they already are starting this, this Olympiad, it starts weird because they kind of ripped it out of Chicago. Um, It's kind of a side, like a, like a sidekick to the world's fair here. It's already been kind of denounced by the IOC. Yeah. So there, so it's, things aren't looking well. Um, Only 12 countries end up sending athletes to compete. Now, some sources have 15 countries, whether it's 12 or 15, it really doesn't matter. You know, some of the reasons for the poor attendance, uh, we talked about this already, the travel logistics, you know, it's difficult to travel to St. Louis, you got ship, you got a long train ride. <clears throat> so you have a lot of low international attendance. There yeah, were, uh, and it's also different because, you know, with travel, it's like North America, there's like, you know, three major countries as opposed to Europe where you could travel, multiple multiple countries could gather in the same place a whole lot easier in Europe than over here. Yeah, super easy to, to get, like, it, it was easier for more countries to be there in Paris. Right. And then when they have them uh, later in those places. But uh, 650 athletes, only 100 were from outside the U.S. And of that 100, 50 were from Canada. So, and I'm sure like 49 of them were within 100 miles of the U.S. border anyway, so. Pro- yep, yeah, so there, <laughs> yeah. there weren't very many from outside the U.S. and Canada. So it's like 50 of the 650 athletes. Um, l- l- one of the things that that caused, though, is uh, walk-up participants were welcomed in this Olympics. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, Just- hello, I would like to, to throw the javelin. <laughs> okay, so. Pop quiz. If you were able to walk up, what would you want to do? What would I want to do or what could I do? Or yes. Maybe two different things. Um, so let's just stick Summer Olympics and we'll kind of think of the, of the modern uh, version of it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Team sport? If it's a team sport... I'd love to play team handball. Don't get me wrong. That, Same. That, that would be 100%. Uh, an individual sport would probably be uh, cycling in some way. Like one of the cycling. I, I don't know what, more like the road cycling, not like in the velodrome. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw too, so many crashes from the Olympics over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, that that, that kind of scares me. What about you? I mean, your team handball was, was is there. Um, tennis? 
Oh, just sure. Because you know I'm not good at it, uh, but I like playing tennis. Yeah, it's a whole lot better than golf. Yeah, I'm not a golf. Not fan. a golfer. S- sorry, sorry, any golf fans. Yeah, I, who was it who said uh, golf is a is a is a good walk uh, ruined? Uh, you could attribute that to pr- roughly three thousand seven hundred forty eight people. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. All right. Uh, getting into this now. Now again, this is the third Olympiad. There's not a lot of uh, of history here, so some of uh, some of the the events are um, different. <clears throat> Would you say that, Richard, is a yeah. good way to say it? And I think some of these are a product of their time. Yeah. So tug of war mm-hmm. was an Olympic sport. Uh, plunge for distance. That's strange. Why don't you go in a little bit about what that so is? Basically, plunge for distance is like the beginning of uh, uh, of the of the swimming race. Like like maybe you saw over the last couple of weeks in Tokyo. Literally, just the jump in to the water. But once you hit the water, you can't move anymore. And it's the person who goes the furthest. <laughs> That's like log. You're right. <laughs> and we just. So that's kind yeah. of what that is. Uh, an official sport in uh, 1904 was golf, uh, and it was it was gone from the Olympics for a long time. It wasn't brought back uh, until 2016. Which is surprising, frankly, that it took that long because I yeah. mean it is an international sport. Absolutely, and it's yeah. There's a there's um, a, an activity called roke, which is a cross between croquet and billiards, and it's kind of like we don't really know exactly how it was played because it seems to have sort of been lost to history a little bit. There's not much on the internet about that. Some of the other sports that maybe you have heard about, uh, there's boxing, freestyle wrestling, weightlifting, although they called it dumbbells. That's awesome. <laughs> I think that's funny. Uh, team archery, team fencing, soccer, golf, decathlon, lacrosse. There was a whole team from Canada that was uh, populated from people all from the Mohawk tribe. Okay. That, that played in the 1904 Olympics from Canada. Uh, there were some demonstration sports, too. Baseball was a demonstration sport. Basketball, American football. Female boxing was a demonstration sport. That's fascinating because, and we'll get into this later, just how difficult it was for uh, women athletes to participate in the early Olympics. Absolutely. Lots of misogyny going on there. Yep, yep. Uh, hurling. Now, this has nothing to do with, with barfing at all. If you know, hurling is a Gaelic sport um, uh, from Ireland. Uh, it, it, there's a there, God, You just need to go on YouTube and just it's find hurling. It's a funky sport. When it's kind of cool. Yeah, there, there's like a goal, like a soccer goal, but then there's also like uprights. a f- like uprights, like a football goal, and then you have to like dribble the ball, but you have a paddle with it, and you can hit it. And I was in Ireland when they were doing the uh, the All Ireland t- uh, tournament, where they uh-huh. do they do uh, Irish football, which is very much like Australian rules football. That should be a whole other uh, oh, Aussie episode. football, yeah. Um, uh, that and and hurling, and they kind of go back and forth. And each county has a team. Anyways, that's not where we're headed. Right. Uh, other things, the 1904 Olympics that were interesting. First Olympics to award gold, silver, bronze medals for, yeah, for well, second, third place. Getting back to the uh, sports, water oh. polo. Oh, yeah, I missed that one. point, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, wa- wa- well, I'll get into where things get weird. Yeah. Water polo is going to be involved. Where this things may get not weird. have been the best year to do uh, water polo as a demonstration <laughs> sport, Absolutely. as it turns out. Um, there's an American named uh, Thomas Foster Scott, was the oldest person ever to compete uh, at archery in the Olympics. He was 71. Uh, but now his daughter, Matilda Scott Howell, she won three gold medals in archery, and archery was the only official sport where women could per- uh, could compete. That's just 
that doesn't make any sense in our 21st century brain. But again, context. And about Olympics, wasn't this the first Olympics that uh, gave, because I kind of cut you off, you were going oh, yeah. in there, but about uh, meddling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, first one to give gold, silver, and bronze medals. You know, they didn't have those in the first couple uh, Olympics. You got like a, a laurel uh, leaf uh, um, on your head is what you got when you won. Okay, That's cool. Did, I mean, is that just for gold, the first place winners, the second and third? Second and third, I don't nothing? think I, I think they got nothing. Yeah, you only got a gold laurel wreath when you won. That's kind of sad. I like I like for a second and third place. That's I good. do too. Uh, there's a couple of uh, of athletes that you probably should know about. Um, one is Ray Erie. Uh, uh, first of all, what you need to know about him, he had polio as a child. Um, hmm. He was able to to survive, but his legs were extremely weak, and he started working uh, on athletic things to, to kind of strengthen them. He ended up becoming a, a track and field athlete. He won eight gold medals in three different Olympics. That's remarkable. Yeah. And then he also won two in Athens in 1906, which is a whole other thing we're going to get into in a little bit. Is it an Olympics game? Is it not an Olympics game? Wait, 1906? you said two, okay, because you said so, 2006. Oh, 1906. 1906. Thank 1906. You. 1906. Yeah. He's not, he wasn't, he was born in 1873. There's no way he was still alive in 2006. Yeah, you can no longer Thank give you. me uh, grief about the Baltimore That's Orioles true. in 54. Um, now, one thing about uh, Ray is that he held the record for most Olympic individual gold medals until Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps uh, passed him in 2008. Yeah. So this dude had the record for 104 years. Yeah. That's that's remarkable. He still holds an Olympic record. He um, is the only Olympic um, athlete to have have competed in eight Olympic events and won eight gold medals. He has that's... 100% gold medal in the eight uh, uh, things that uh, he entered. That's imp- That has to be up there as far as the, one of the most impressive uh, Olympic careers. Absolutely. I mean, just, yeah. Very, very impressive. Another name uh, is George Iser. Uh, he was a gymnast. Uh, he competed in the 1904 Olympics, and he, got, uh, he earned six medals uh, in one day. He got three gold and two silver, uh, and I'm guessing the other one would be a bronze, right? Um, yeah. And you go, well, that's that's pretty amazing, you know, six in one day. But what you don't know yet about him is that he competed with a wooden prosthesis for a left leg. His left leg uh, he lost because it got run over by a train. And despite that, he won the gold in the vault, uh, which you had to jump over the vault horse without a springboard at that particular time. Okay. And um, pretty pretty crazy. Yeah. So so you have a couple of amazing things that are happening, but also you go, all right, this is just par for the course about what's about to happen for the 1904 Olympics. Yeah. Let me get back to Iser uh, uh, winning with the vault because he had no springboard. And if you've watched that event... You have to run up to to build momentum. Uh, yes, and he he did this with with his with a, lower leg missing. Yeah, with a, he had he had a, a prosthesis. Wood, yeah, uh huh. That's and this isn't like uh, modern day where you could actually have a good sense of mobility when you're running. Uh, you know, because we've seen you know in the Paralympics, this is 1904 prosthesis. Yeah, yeah, right. This is the, and he's do. I mean, that's just. 
you, you should really take a pause to just ponder just how remarkable that is. Yep, absolutely. All right, you ready for things to uh, to turn a little crazy? Yeah. All right, so things get a little crazy. There's a boxer uh, who who entered the Olympics under a false name. It was the name of, of a, a very um, popular uh, boxer in St. Louis, and thinking that he would be able to get favorable uh, judges, thinking that he was a local kid, uh, he he entered into a false uh, a false name. He ended up being found out. He ended up uh, not winning. All that kind of stuff. Kind of kind of strange. There was an artificial lake that was built in Forest Park, part of the the exposition there, and they used that lake for the swimming and the water polo events. Um, during the water polo matches, Richard. One end of the lake was also being used by livestock from the fair. <laughs> so they're playing water polo in one part of the lake. And then like, I don't know, is it cows, pigs, whatever, horses are in the other lake. And we know what happens when their animals are in there. That can't be a good thing. It actually turns kind of dark because within a year... Four water polo players died of typhus, most likely related to what they called agricultural pollution in the lake. Oh, gosh. Yeah, they're not really thinking. No, I mean, even back then, there was, you know, you had to know that animals, livestock, carried some diseases, and that's not a good thing. Nope, nope. I mean, you can lead a horse to water, but apparently you can't get them them to stick around and uh, keep water polo players healthy. Right, exactly. Um, That's a lot of craziness, all right? Mm -hmm. But it it doesn't hold a candle to the craziest event of the 1904 games. And, in fact, the marathon is is absolutely nuts. It's going to make the rest of the 1904 Olympics look almost normal, but... Richard, before we get into that, we are going to have to take a little bit of a break. All right. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. All right. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rich and I may be new at podcasting, but our podcast partner is not. We use Anchor.fm to host and distribute the Athletic Obscura podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way we have found to make and distribute a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's totally free, which is a huge selling point for us. Second, there are a ton of creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. 
No additional software needed and no complex programs to learn. Once you've recorded your podcast, Anchor will distribute it for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. One of the coolest things is that you can actually make money from your podcast right away. No need to wait to grow your audience as there are no minimum listener requirements to be met, which helps you when you're just starting out. Anchor has everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, we are back. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we're talking about the 1904 Summer Olympics in St. Louis. Uh, pretty crazy. Things are not uh, are not great, uh, but uh, uh, things are about to get even crazier. Yeah, I mean, you stuck around to hear the uh, you know the contaminated pool for the water polo team. <laughs> Wait, wait till you hear about the uh, marathon. Yeah, the marathon is crazy. Uh, so, so buckle up; it's about to get a little bit crazier. So, uh, just to tease you, I came up with a few titles for this section. Richard, are you ready? <laughs> All right, Richard got to peek into some of these just a second ago. All right, here are my titles: the 1904 Olympic marathon, a story of poison, medical malfeasance, and cheating. All right, or uh, how about this one? Rat poison, brandy, and stolen apples. The stole is the story of the 1904 <laughs> Olympic marathon. All right, uh, what about this one? The 1904 Olympic Marathon, the story of fraud, raw eggs, liquor, feral dogs, and at least three incidents of near death. <laughs> uh, and then one that's maybe a little dark, but it's yeah. actually true. The 1904 Olympic Marathon, a sick experiment in pseudoscience and racism. Yeah. Really what is underlying here. No, that's important that you keep it real here because um, it's there's an undercurrent, and we'll get to – the person behind that undercurrent in a, in a couple beats here, but kudos to you for using the word malfeasance. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you're welcome. Yeah. I got my big boy vocabulary on today. All right. So first of all, uh, marathon um, goes way, way back in history. Um, you know, talking about the race uh, in, in, or a, a run in Greece to the city of Marathon, 26.2 miles away, blah, 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 all those things. You kind of know. I didn't mean to blah, blah, blah that. That's not really what I mean. Uh, the 1904 Olympic Marathon was not quite 26.2 miles. They had uh, worked out uh, a route that went from uh, the stadium that they were there. They ran a couple of laps. They went through the, the city. And I don't want to say city streets. It's much more like roads. Yeah, right. dusty roads. There's no pavements, right? Uh, and not the the the, uh, the wrestler, wrestler dusty roads, right? right. Um, first of all, in 1904, uh, they decided to run the marathon to start at 3 p.m. Now, I want you to think about this. This is summertime in St. Louis, 3 p.m. That is suffocating heat. Suffocating heat. So they said that the the, um, the temperature was probably between 90 and 95 in the shade, was definitely about 100 degrees in the sun. And if you've ever been to St. Louis in the summer, you know that it's not just the heat, it's the humidity. Right. So it's very high humidity. Um, there is one water stop on the whole route, and we're going to get to why in a little bit. And yeah, Richard, you're shaking your head because it's... It's, it's, it's just poor planning, but... It's well, that part of sick, right? Yeah, it's sick pseudoscience. Sick pseudoscience. Yeah, <sighs> there were seven pretty big hills in this. Um, there was uh, suffocating dust. 
that uh, was kicked up by the cars. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, the terrain, uh, they said, was inches of dust and filled with rocks. Uh, we're going to get into the story of some feral dogs that are involved in this whole thing. Um, and when all is said and done, the, the winner of the marathon, and we'll talk about who that is in a little bit, uh, won with the slowest time ever. Uh, winning time in uh, Olympic marathon. In fact, by 30 minutes slower than the next slowest time. Um, and wow. in fact, the winning the winning time is in the bottom 2% of all Olympic finishers ever of the marathon. Sounds about right. Yeah, so uh, dust was a major problem. Uh, they decided to have cars kind of lead the runners. So 1904... There's no muffler. There's no catalytic converter. So they're sucking up all the exhaust plus all of the dirt that is coming up. Uh, and the dirt and the dusty roads is going to be a, an extreme problem in just a little bit. Also, this is not a closed course, Richard. So you've got cars. You've got streetcars. You've got trains. You've got people. You've got trucks. You have all of those things. There's even pictures online of, of one of the people crossing a railroad track. It's it's crazy. 32 competitors uh, representing four countries end up um, uh, starting it. Only 14 people cross the finish line. So, so, yeah, doing the math, less than half. Less than half. Less than half uh, finished. That is by far the, the, the smallest percentage of those who start to finish an Olympic marathon. Um, but let's get into this. Why is there only one water stop? Well, this gets into our uh, kind of the villain of the story, uh, James Edward Sullivan. He's kind of the race organizer. In fact, he was the organizer of all of uh, the athletic events. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's more connected to the uh, exposition than he is to the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, he's Even the, though he does have ambitions to one day become head of the IOC. Yeah. And I think part of this is spurred from some of this information. He's the one who gets the AAU to come out of Chicago, yep. come down to St. Louis, all these kind of things. He, so he, he's the puppet master behind everything. Absolutely. He he takes um, he has some uh, some very disgusting uh, things running in his brain. Um, yeah. He he is uh, he is one who uh, if he. If he's a little bit uh, another generation, he's he's with Adolf Hitler, so yeah. he 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 thinks um, very uh, negatively towards anybody who is not a, a white Caucasian person. Oh, that was one of the things with anthropology days, yeah. right? Is to be able to display that this this winds up being a display of white supremacy because he's really putting these people that participate in anthropology days and if you look into the history they weren't trained athletes and they pretty much put them on a global stage to make them look foolish in yeah. you know in comparison to the, the uh, whites so, so terrible so this is kind of running through the the entire 1904 uh, olympics anyways but one of the things that he uses the olympic marathon for is for an experiment he uses the runners as kind of lab rats in a, in a pseudoscientific experiment. He wants to test what he calls purposeful dehydration. And his theory is that purposeful dehydration leads to better athletic performance. 
So you already know that he's got some yeah. things that aren't quite quite right in the head. So he says he only puts in one one water stop. There's a there's a water tower about nine miles in. There is another well at one point too, uh, but that is not filtered water. And so if you're going to be drinking that, there's a good chance um, you have <laughs> you have what they call uh, you get a brown metal. Um, in the Olympics, you know, the brown medal is no, is it's... that when when your the water goes through you and comes out brown. Okay, yeah. Today I learned. <laughs> so you don't want a brown medal when you're running a marathon. That would be that would be bad. All right. Um, so we're going to talk more about Sullivan in a little bit, but this guy is no good. Let's talk about some of the the the. Participants. Participants, absolutely. You have the guy uh, guy named John Lorden. He was the winner of the Boston Marathon in 1903. He was considered one of the best distance runners in the world. And it depends on kind of who you end up talking to. He either drops out of the race a couple of blocks in or a couple of miles in because he is is puking. He's just profusely. He just can't keep anything down. Is this... um, you know, what, did he get bad food? Was there just, was there water? Is this the dust? Maybe he took a com- swim in that lake. Maybe, maybe he <laughs> took a swim. Or maybe it was typhus. Who knows <laughs> Who knows what it is? Um, but so the winner of the Boston Marathon is out. Right. Um, so then you have a guy named Michael Spring. He's from New York. He was the winner of the 1904 Boston Marathon earlier in the spring. Okay. And on one of the first hills, he collapses. <laughs> That must have been one heck of a hill. Well, and it's a hundred degrees outside, and this there's no water. Yeah, um, and so, but yeah, they said it was it was crazy. So he is he is out. So now you have the past two winners of the Boston Marathon out early. Uh, William Garcia is from from California. He gets about halfway through uh, the course, and he ends up coughing and coughing and coughing, and then he ends up throwing up, and he ends up throwing up blood, and then he ends up uh, passing out, and he ends up becoming uh, unconscious, and he is now lying in the road. Wow. He's lying in the road, and somebody comes uh, uh, upon him, a bystander, ends up getting him to the hospital. So let's take a pause right here. So it's not like an Olympic official. It's not anybody monitoring the race. No. He just happens to this, this bystander, this good Samaritan, comes along and sees this guy unconscious on the road. He could have died. Uh, very much so. They said if the bystander didn't get him, he most likely would have died. He was he was hemorrhaging internally. They said because he had probably uh, ingested so much dust uh, that it basically w- was sanding the inside of his esophagus and his stomach. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it, this is this is crazy. This is this is this is not good stuff. So William Garcia is out. Michael Spring is out. John Lorden is out. Uh, next, I want to tell you the story about the the very first black African athletes in the history of the modern Olympics. And I'm going to try to pronounce their names uh, correctly, uh, but Lynn Tanyaye uh, and Jan Mashani. They were from South Africa. They were veterans of the Second Boer War. They were in St. Louis because they were Boer War reenactors. And they were some of the ones who just walked up and entered the marathon. 
Neither of them um, really ha- had any formal training in running, although they were dispatch runners in the war. So basically, they would take a, a, a information from one part from where the fighting was and would relay that information to another place. So they they were good athletes, but mm-hmm. they just kind of kind of came I- into uh, this. What is crazy? is uh, uh, Lin Tanyane ends up finishing ninth. Um, so he finishes the race. He finishes ninth, probably not wearing shoes. So he, he doesn't wear shoes at all because he probably did not have them. Yes, I, I vaguely remember, recall reading that. So then, and then Jan Mashani um, ends up, he probably would have finished better. He finished 12th, but he probably would have finished a lot better. But he ends up being chased by feral dogs. He's, How? he's chased miles off course by feral dogs. So he's running. Now remember, this is not a not a closed course. Right. And but somehow he comes across feral dogs who end up chasing him and chases him for, for miles and miles. He ends up come, getting back on course, ends up finishing twelfth. Kinda kinda crazy. Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now now uh, let me introduce you all to one of my favorite characters in this entire uh, story. His name is Felix Carvajal. He has a much longer official name. Uh, a very diminutive man. They said he was not much more than five feet tall. He's from Cuba. He was not invited. He did not come officially uh, by the Cuban government. Um, he raised all of his own money to get to St. Louis. Now, how he did that, he was a mailman, and he would like basically run for tips. Like he would he would run, and people would pay him just to run. I bet you I can run from from here to whatever, and people would pay him. They said he, and whether this is legend or not, is that he ran the entire length of Cuba, about seven hundred miles. And, wow. and, and in so doing, he, he raised enough money to get him uh, passage uh, on a ship to come to New Orleans. So he's got all the money that he raised. He's been running uh, a lot. Uh, I don't know who's doing his mail route at this particular point. Uh, but he shows up in New Orleans, uh, and he gets a little bit waylaid. Uh, he gets as a, one does. As one does in New Orleans. <laughs> and he got waylaid by what you probably think he gets waylaid with. He gets waylaid with liquor and gambling. That's, yeah. So Felix that Carvajal. still happen today. It, it could. So Felix Carvajal shows up in New Orleans on his way to St. Louis, and he, he blows all of his money. Not just some of his money, Richard. He blows all of his money. So now he has no more money. So basically now he's got to hitchhike to St. Louis. From or, New Orleans to St. Louis. Or, or, they, or ride in a boxcar. Or they said there's a good chance he probably ran a good fair bit of the distance. Um, that's another like 700 miles. Uh, well, to, all he had to do was fall in the Mississippi, right? So he so, could yeah. get there. Uh, so he he had never really run an official marathon before. He never ran competitively, and he will never run competitively again. Uh, he gets to St. Louis. And he uh, becomes friends with the American weightlifting team. What do we call those? The dumbbell team? The dumbbell dumb- team, yeah. So, so he becomes friends with the dumbbell team. They take him in, and they, they give him room and board. They feed him. Uh, they do all sorts of things. They become kind of his, uh, uh, his fan club there. So on the day of the marathon, he shows up, and he's wearing uh, a long white, uh, long sleeve white T-shirt. Or no, it's long... A long-sleeved white shirt. Geez, Seth, you can talk. He's got dress pants on. 
He's got dress shoes on, and he's got a green beret that he's wearing. This is what he shows up to run that the marathon. That is the most uncomfortable thing you can possibly wear in a St. Louis uh, July heat. R- right. And there's some pictures. You can find them on the internet. You can find some pictures. Everybody else is wearing, like, you know, like a tank top and, and shorts, and they've got some sort of, ele- you know, uh, athletic shoes. And he's there just looking, like, completely out out uh, out of place. He's got a, a belt on, regular old shoes. Well, um, there, there's an American discus thrower uh, who's there who's befriended him uh, who runs into a, a nearby store and borrows a pair of scissors and comes out and, and cuts the, the bottom of his, of his trousers off. So now that they're shorts, finds out that he's wearing long johns underneath. Um, he decides that he's going to keep wearing his long johns underneath. Uh, and now, you would think that somewhere between New Orleans and St. Louis, because that's not exactly uh, a cool uh, temperate climate in right. July, you would have think that he would have figured something out. But he doesn't. That's uh, remarkable. There, there are those who say that this is, they think this is probably his only pair of clothes that he had. Mm, that so, makes sense then. So he, he, he shows up not, not thinking that he's going to, you know, run. Uh, uh, or, or not prepared really to run what, what we might think. He's also, uh, he's a very slight man and he's always hungry. Okay. And as he's running, he's he's famished. And so he uh, ends up uh, talking to uh, the, the trainers of, of another one of the runners, which we haven't talked to about yet, uh, Thomas Hicks. And uh, they have a, a basket of peaches in the car. Okay. And he's trying to say, well, I, I, please give me some peaches. I want to have some peaches. And they tell him, no, 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 you can't have any peaches. He ends up basically diving into the car, taking like three or four peaches, and then running away. This is in the middle of the race. <laughs> he ends up eating the peaches on, on his way. Um, uh, along the way, he sees a, a number of people who are there to maybe cheer on or whatever, and he stops and has conversations with people. <laughs> this is in the middle of the Olympic marathon. Are we sure we're not like some lost plot of Cannonball Run at this <laughs> no, point? I mean, just I think you could make a movie about Carbajal. I think you really could. So, so he's talking to people. They said he was very, very, very kind, very jovial. That they were he was joking around with people. As he's running, even more, he's more hungry, and he sees an apple orchard. So he goes to the apple orchard. Now, let me let me stop for just a minute, Richard, and say. Um, this may or may not have happened. It depends. There's really only uh, this story doesn't really come into print until like about 35 years after the event. So okay, it, it, there could be a little bit could of embarrassment hearsay. here. Could be hearsay, but basically the story is uh, is that he goes into a, an apple orchard and he picks some apples and he eats them. And he gets a stomachache because they were either not ripe or they were rotten or something like that. Um, I want to remind all of you who have forgotten that we're talking about this is the middle of the Olympic marathon that this is happening. Yeah. All right. So he eats these apples. He gets a stomachache. He's not feeling well. So what does he decide to do? He decides to take a nap. Of course. Well, why not just take a nap in the middle of, of the marathon? So I guess he takes takes a little cat nap. And then he wakes up, and he starts running again, and he finishes in fourth place. <laughs> uh, I think, it's like I'm playing Mad Libs. You are. Like, like this is like this. I think is, you need like a recap here. Okay. All right. Let's, let's recap a little bit, Rich, Richard. So the winners of the Boston Marathon from 1903 and 1904 failed to finish the race, but an uninvited amateur runner 
wearing street clothes, who took a nap in the middle of the race, finished fourth. <laughs> that's yeah. no, yeah, right? No, right. that's yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> again, I really think you could make a whole movie about uh, Carbajal. His whole, you know, running across Cuba, getting to New Orleans, getting to St. Louis, running the race. The whole uh, it would be Hollywood. We, if you're listening. Do we know what happened to this guy after the race? Not much. It looks like he went back to deliver mail back in Cuba. Wow. Yeah, because he he never runs again. Right. He's not in any major competition. I mean, he might have run in in Cuba again, but we don't we don't see him on the on the landscape of sports again. That's just fascinating. Yeah. All right, let's move into a, a couple of other uh, big people here. Uh, Fred Lors is a New York bricklayer. He works all day. He runs at night. All right. He ends up winning the Boston Marathon in 1905. Um, But as he's running here in the 1904 Olympic Marathon, he ends up quitting about halfway through Eh, or maybe nine miles. Again, depends on on what source you're looking at. He's got cramps. So he decides uh, he's going to get into a car and he's going to run um, or he's going to ride back. Mm -hmm. And so he's riding in the car. Uh, He goes probably 11 miles or so. Uh, and uh, the car breaks down. And he's sitting there. He's in the hot sun. He doesn't want to wait for somebody to come pick him up or for it to get fixed. He's close to the to the uh, the, the marathon course, so he decides that he's just going to jump on the course again, and he's going to keep running. So now he's running. He ends up passing um, a guy named Thomas Hicks, what we'll get to in, in just a little bit. Sure. And uh, he's the first to, back, to get back into the stadium. Now you gotta you gotta remember. Now, as he goes into the stadium, everybody starts cheering. They think he's he's winning, because this is not like there's a there's a camera on them for the entire time. There's not like race officials, right? So you see them, obviously because one guy almost died, right? Yeah, you see them running around uh, a track. They leave the stadium. They come back a couple hours later. You think he's going to be the winner. He runs around. He goes through. I don't know if there's a tape that should go through. I don't know if they had a tape for him to to cross yeah. in 1904. But uh, everybody thinks that he wins, and he goes along with it. So he goes. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna play along with it. So um, uh, Alex Roosevelt is there. This is the daughter of President Theodore Roosevelt. All right, and she was there to give the the gold medal. Um, and a laurel uh, leaf um, uh, crown to the winner. Just before that happens, we have another person who enters the scene named Thomas Hicks. We're going to get into Thomas Thomas Hicks' story in a little bit. And it's the craziest of them all. I'm not joking, Richard. That's okay. remarkable because okay. we already had a guy show up and take a nap. And uh, I know. Yeah. Hicks' and- story is, is the craziest. So anyways, they start... Going crazy, um, they say that uh, that that he was uh, riding in a car. He had, he was waving to everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that he was in the car. There's there's you know he just he, called him out as being fake. Yeah, totally being fake. And he goes, "Oh, just kidding. I was only joking. I really wasn't going to take the medal," is what he said. <laughs> they end up disqualifying him mm-hmm. and then banning him for life. That's a good call. Yeah, but they reinstate him like two months later, and he wins the Boston Marathon the next spring. Of course he does. All right. So that runner, Thomas Hicks, that we mentioned, that he happened to pass, Mm -hmm. uh, he's a Boston brass worker. He had finished second in the Boston Marathon the previous spring. His trainer is Charles J.P. Lucas. Now, Charles J.P. Lucas is uh, basically a, a, a partner with Sullivan in this whole thing. So not a good guy. Not a good guy. Lucas, the trainer, is not going to give Hicks any water. 
That seems not. That seems like a bad trainer move. Yeah, you would think. The yeah. trainer goes, no, you can't have any water. So he, he gets a sponge. He wipes his mouth out with the sponge, and then he wrings the sponge out over his head. That's what, that's what he does for him. All right? Then he says, I'm, I'll give you some egg whites for you to eat. And then to, to, to top it off, I'm going to give you some strychnine. No, yeah. a poison. Strychnine. If you know strychnine, that's rat poison. So I'm not going to give you water. See, I told you I got crazier. I'm not going to give you water, but I'm going to give you egg whites and strychnine. Oh, Enjoy this delicious rat poison. It gets better. To wash it all down, I'm going to give you a fifth of brandy. Okay. <laughs> Let's stop right there. Okay. It's 100 degrees with 90% humidity. Yep. If I'm going to be drinking a cocktail or a spirit, <laughs> a brandy is probably low on that list of uh, cocktails I want to drink or spirits I want to drink. Right. Right. No. Th- this is not refreshing. No. So it was considered at the time that strychnine was a performance enhancer, that it helped the, the muscles continue to work even though you were beyond fatigued. Uh, th- the bad part about it is that, A, it's a poison, and it would do kind of what tetanus would do, and you would just, like, all of your muscles would seize up. It would just lock up, yeah. Yeah, and if it's your diaphragm muscle, then you asphyxiate. Your heart. Yeah, your heart. Yeah. It, it's, it's bad, bad, bad. To make matters worse, Richard. Worse than strychnine. Worse than strychnine. At the 20-mile mark, he's ready to give up. He goes, I can't do it. Fred Lors has already passed me up, so I'm going to lose anyways. They go, no, well, he was riding in the car. And so there's like, but I'm not going to do it. So they say, all right, we'll give you another egg white. (laughs) We'll give you some more strychnine. (laughs) And we'll give you another fifth of brandy. (laughs) Bonus strychnine. So, so, oh, bonus strychnine. They're playing the the, the side stage of the troubadour. Anyways, that's another whole thing. Um, so, at this point, now he begins to hallucinate, as well. You probably would, yeah, because you're poisoned. He thinks that he's still about twenty miles from from the finish, and uh, and he's really only about one mile from the stadium. Now, his trainer, the JP, Charles J.P. Lucas, and another individual are now basically carrying him. Now, back in the day, this wasn't seen as cheating. Now, if this would happen, you know, you, you, you can't carry somebody through it. Yeah. But he's basically carried into the, uh, the, the stadium. And this is right when they see the officials ready to award the, the medal to Fred Lores. They carry him across the finish line. He collapses. And now he's unconscious. Uh, you know, that's kind of what you do when you have two bouts of strychnine. Yeah, and, and two-fifths of brandy. Yeah. And have run a marathon, and you don't have any water. Um, so it takes a couple of hours for the doctors to revive him. And again, you can look up, a, there's a couple of pictures on the internet. He looks awful. Yeah, he looks like he's dead. He looks like he's dead. So he finishes with a time of 3 hours, 28 minutes, 53 seconds. They say he lost 8 pounds. Um, he um, uh, it, it, He's just worse for wear. Now, silver medal goes to American Albert Corey, who seems to have run the race fine. Mm-hmm. And then the bronze medal goes to American Arthur Newton, again, seemed to have gone fine. Okay. Um, so Basically, the winner of the first Olympic marathon held in the United States was a man who was poisoned twice <laughs> along the route. 
finished slightly ahead of a man who cracked jokes with bystanders, stole some apples, and took a nap under a tree. Oh. And that is the 1904 <laughs> Olympic marathon. marathon. Now, this, along with all of the other terrible things that happened. We there. didn't even mention the fact how long the 1904 Olympics were. Yeah. This. Go ahead, Rich. It lasted five months. Yeah, this is no two-week thing. No. It, it started in, like, June to coincide with the fair. It kept going on until, like, October. Yeah. And, again, because the fair also had some sporting events, uh, people that were there weren't weren't sure what event was an Olympic event or what was part of the fair. Yeah, it, it, it was, was just a mess. mess. It was a total mess. Now, the the International Olympic Committee tries to repair the reputation of the Olympics. Um, they Now, this is not where we need to go today, Richard, but there is a whole, um, there's a battle with the uh, people who are planning the Olympics. Right. Should the Olympics be in Athens all the time? Should it be there every four years, or should the Olympics move from host city to host city every four years? So really, the, the group that's wanted to have it for host city kind of won, but the other group gets a lot of traction after the, the, the 1904 Olympics because they yeah. were such a disaster. Yeah. And because of that, they they hold um, a, another Olympics in 1906 in, in Athens. Um, and and, and I, I can't find where, what, what did they the call it? Intercalated Games. The intercalated Games. So this is the, uh, the, 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 the minority faction in the Olympic Organizing Committee mm-hmm. puts on this Games in, in 1906 in Athens. They wanted to do that then every four years in Athens. They were treated like an Olympic Games. They were considered to be Olympic Games. Uh, the IOC referred to them as the second international Olympic Games in Athens. Right. That's like the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. It's big, long yeah. thing. Uh, they handed out medals. Um, there were some really good things that happened there. but Like innovations that, re- that still shape the Olympics today. Uh, yeah, share yeah. some of those, Richard. So, like, this was the first one that had an official Olympic ceremony, opening ceremony and an official closing ceremony. Um, they also were the first ones to have athlete registration going through the IOC, so you couldn't just have people to just show up and say, hey, I'm here for the marathon. Yeah. Uh, they're the first ones to actually have an Olympic village. Yep. And they were also the, the first games to have the tradition of raising the national flags for the medalists. So a lot of the things that you think of that the Olympics actually go back to an event that now has been kind of scrubbed from history. Yeah, it's erased, and uh, the the Olympics don't officially recognize it. You won't see any of the medals won or really any reference when you go to the Olympic Museum in Lausanne, Switzerland. Yeah, and... and- there was some movement before 1906 to have this happen. They wanted to do this in, in, in 1901, but it kind of got, got pushed back. And it, it ran way better than the 1904. They, yeah. they finished it in two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. So a lot of the things that we see, like we saw these last couple of weeks in, in Tokyo, really goes back to something that's really not in the, in the, in the not, history Yeah, anymore. it's been erased. And what's interesting is that we're now having those conversations again here we are 100 years later, whether or not we should have rotated host cities or a set city to have the Olympics every every time. Right. Now, we know that in history it ends up rotating, uh, and the next Olympic Games are set to be in London in 1908. 
Um, they don't go really well either. No. There's some of the same issues that they have uh, they as well. Six months. Six months long. Um, lots of things. That, um, here, here's a fun <laughs> fact that I found is that uh, in the 1908 Olympic Games in London, uh, Russia ended arriving two weeks late because they were still on the Julian calendar. Whoops. Not, not the Gregorian calendar that everybody else had gone to. Um, yeah, but, but six months I think you, uh, we put the dates in here. April 27th to October 31st was the Olympic Games. Yeah, that's a long time. That is way long. But I wonder, I think the marathon ran smoother. <laughs> I think it did. Yeah. Um, let's go back a little bit to the 1904 Olympics, and, and we're about time to wrap it up. But we do want to give a little bit uh, of time talking about James Edward Sullivan. And, and Richard, I'm going to let you drive the bus here a little bit. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about James Edward Sullivan. We've talked to him, uh, talked about him, uh, about getting the, the, the Olympics to St. Louis and some of the, the issues that that had. But Give us yeah. some more. Um, Sullivan really is, if you're looking at one of the more vilified people in the first uh, 50 years of American sports, he is, he deserves to be at the, at, in the top of the conversation. Uh, just because um, if you know anything about the world's greatest athlete in the first 50 years, uh, a guy by the name of Jim Thorpe, American, uh, American Olympian, uh, also wound up playing uh, professional baseball and professional football. Yep, yep. Uh, but he won uh, two. Uh, he won medals at the 1912 Olympics in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, he eventually had those uh, medals stripped because they were saying that, "Oh, you actually uh, took some money and played and were a professional athlete." The person that was behind that push was James Edward Sullivan. Uh, he actually was the guy that stripped Thorpe of his amateur status in the States, thus paving the way for Thorpe to have his Olympic medal stripped. And uh, what's interesting is the IOC actually came back and said, um, you know what, we don't have a problem. This really kind of looks like it's not that big of a deal because I think it, it really, if you look at it, it was really kind of a ridiculous uh, charge that Sullivan was throwing. And they said, no, we're going to say Thorpe gets to keep his medals. Uh, but Sullivan insisted that Thorpe be disqualified. And fans of the Olympics and fans of Thorpe at this point uh, really thought that he got a raw deal. But Thorpe, uh, uh, but uh, Sullivan was insistent on that, and finally the IOC acquiesced and took his medals. And it was out of Thorpe's uh, uh, family until like the mid '80s, until they actually finally uh, reinstated the medals. That's terrible. And 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 there's there's some underlying things there too. Oh, absolutely. Sullivan. Because remember, uh, Thorpe was uh, a Native American. He was yep. part of the Carlisle. Um, you know, went to Carlisle Indian School, uh, I think it was. And by the way, th I read somewhere that uh, the resources uh, that Carlisle actually threw to fight this pretty much uh, stripped them bare of their finances. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, so, so it was terrible. So, yeah, we think of Solomon with the anthrop anthropology days, his white supremacy, and just really kind of focusing on just how inferior that is. Thorpe's uh, Native American status, I think, has to come into play here. Sure. And not only that, at least he was also misogynistic. Because in 1908, uh, women, or 1912, rather, I'm sorry, um, women were allowed to participate in diving and swimming events 
But Sullivan specifically barred American women from participating in those events for the 1912 Olympics. And all of this, mind you, why his ultimate play was to become the head of the IOC. International Olympic Committee. As, yep. Yeah. So he died before he had that. But here's the thing. So you mentioned, Seth, earlier in the podcast that he was like the founder of the AAU. Yeah. And really part of that. AAU still exists today. AAU still gives out an award called the James E. Sullivan Award to the best amateur athlete, given each April to, quote, the most outstanding amateur athlete in the United States. It's been given out by 1930s, since 1930, and some of the winners you will probably be familiar with. Uh, you know, some of the older winners are Bobby Jones, which is a, a legendary golfer, Rayford Johnson, who won the yep. Decathlon in yep. 1960. Some of these names will start sounding more familiar to you. Mark Spitz, yep. the great swimmer. Yep. Bill Walton, the great basketball player. Florence Griffith Joyner, Flo Jo, run that, won that award in 86. Peyton Manning won in, uh, for football in 1997. 2014, Ezekiel Elliott, you probably have him on your fantasy team. Yeah, probably. He won the award. So this guy, this guy who created this um, a monstrous event to showcase white supremacy, stripped Jim Thorpe, you know, ban women from participating in Women in Diamond event, and they still give an award named after him. Yeah. You know, if we, you know, we're, we made progress, and we'll go into some of these racist people that have owned teams or whatever later yeah. on, but this guy, this guy. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, you know, his stink is all over the 1904 Olympics and, and uh, especially the marathon with – Basically, using those athletes as lab rats, and and that's just it's yeah. just unconscionable. It's it's ridiculous. It really so. is. I mean, yeah. You know, considering it, it really looks at it, looking back at it, it, really looks like a minor miracle that nobody died. Oh right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, not to end on a on a downer, but uh, <laughs> 1904 Olympics were were crazy. That was terrible. Yeah. Needless I, to say, St. Louis has never hosted a winter, uh, uh, an Olympics again. Yeah, they, they, I think they have been banned for life uh, yeah. for that. Um, thank you guys so much uh, uh, for listening again. Uh, oh, I'm going to do the bumper music, right? Yeah, you should. Because we love this music. It's great. All right. Um, our next episode, uh, what we're working on and what we're planning on and whether or not this actually becomes our next episode or we need more time for that, uh, is a story that has nothing to do with St. Louis. Good. We're Does gonna, it have anything to do with Baltimore? It uh, doesn't have anything to do with Baltimore either. Excellent. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, the event that ushered in modern gambling as we know it. That's fantastic, and I bet you uh, it's something weird, isn't it? It's going to be something weird and a little bit unknown, and you probably don't know much about it. It's a fascinating story. Uh, so Rich and I are actively uh, working on that one right now. we got a couple more uh, um, in uh, the works as well. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. And, guys, we know this is a long podcast. We're, we're well over our hour that we had planned, but that is okay. Thanks for making it to the end. If you have a topic idea for us, if you want to chat, uh, if you want to agree or disagree with us, um, send us an email. I'll put a link uh, to that in the show notes. Subscribe, rate, comment on your podcast platform of choice. This helps out uh, us out a lot. You can uh, support the podcast financially. Uh, we have some co- costs that we need to cover. Uh, there's a link for that in the show notes as well. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, feel free to contact us. We'll get the ball rolling on that. And don't forget to check out anchor.fm for all of your podcast needs. 
And I think that's all I got here, Richard. That's a lot of stuff. Uh, thanks for thanks for the conversation. Thank you, Seth. Yeah, this is great. And uh, sorry, I kind of like got a little passionate at the end. It's like no, uh, I just I think it's yeah. something we should be passionate about. Well, until next time, we invite you uh, to another uh, discussion of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. Adios. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Electric acid.